So here's a Bible. And the Bible says that this is the sword of the spirit. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter six, which means that when we open up the Bible and we pray over it, we study it, we think about it. The Holy spirit will use the truth of scripture like a sword to destroy unbelief that's in our hearts, to conquer temptations that we're facing. The Holy spirit will go to work in powerful ways through the scripture and strengthen us. And we each need to be using the sword of the spirit more grace church. Are you using the sword? Do you turn to the sword of the spirit when you find yourself struggling, doubting, tempted? Now think about this though. Three quarters of the Bible, here it is. Three quarters of the sword is the Old Testament, which some call the law. One quarter, that means, is the New Testament, gospel. And there's a problem here because many Christians, I find, are confused about, does the Old Testament message match the New Testament message? If this is the New Testament, why do we bother reading the Old Testament? Do they teach different things? Like, for example, some of you may have heard that the Old Testament teaches that we're saved by works, by obeying enough to be saved, whereas the New Testament teaches that we're saved by faith. Is that true? And if so, why would we read the Old Testament? Others have heard that the Old Testament teaches that we're saved by our own righteousness, trying to be righteous enough to earn God's favor, whereas the New Testament teaches that we're saved by Jesus' perfect righteousness, which we receive, have given to us by faith. Is there a difference? Others have heard that the law says, do. It's all about us doing deeds of obedience in order to gain favor with God. Whereas the New Testament teaches done, that Christ has already done everything necessary for salvation. So we trust him. Can you feel the confusion? Some of you maybe have wrestled with that. This confusion is a problem because if we aren't confident about the message of the Old Testament, then how much of a sword of the spirit are we going to have? One quarter of the sword that we need. If you had a full sword, how many of you would go into war with a quarter of it? Not wise. And what I'm praying that God will do tonight is answer some of those basic questions about Old Testament, New Testament, whole sword, quarter sword, teaching the same thing, teaching something different. We won't answer all the questions, but I hope that we can answer some of the main ones because that's Paul's topic in our next passage in Romans, Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Now, I thought we would start by reviewing what we saw at the very end of last week's passage, the end of Romans chapter 9, because Paul also sets the stage for what he's going to tell us in chapter 10 about the, the law and the New Testament. So let's ask this question. What did Paul say about the law in Romans chapter 9? Look at verses 30 and 31. Here Paul explains why is it that many Gentiles are becoming Christians following Christ, whereas many, many from Israel, many of the people of Israel are not. Why? Verse 30, Paul says, what shall we say then? 
that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. So Paul says that Gentiles who have come to faith, they did not pursue righteousness. Did you catch that? Verse 30, they did not pursue righteousness, which means they were not trying to earn their salvation from God by their own deeds of righteousness. They were not trying to make up for their sin by being good enough. So how are they saved then? It's because they saw that they were sinners who were in desperate need of being perfectly righteous before God, but that they couldn't make themselves perfectly righteous before God. They saw that. And more importantly, they saw that God had provided a perfect righteousness in sending Jesus, the Messiah, whose perfect sinlessness is given to all who turn to him in faith. His perfect sinlessness, his perfect righteousness covers us. We are perfectly righteous before God because of what Jesus did. That's how the Gentiles got saved. What about Israel, though? Why weren't very many of them saved? God had given them a law, Paul says right there in verse 31, that would lead to righteousness. He'd given them a law that would lead to righteousness. And they had pursued that law, but they'd not reached the righteousness. They'd not gained righteousness. Why? Paul answers that in verse 32. Why? Why did they not succeed in reaching that law? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by or based on works. God had given them a law of righteousness that would lead to righteousness. They pursued that law, but they didn't reach it. They didn't attain the righteousness because they didn't pursue it by faith. They pursued it as if it were based on works. The Old Testament law was given to them to lead them to perfect righteousness by faith, not by works, by faith. The Old Testament law called Israel to recognize they were sinners. They desperately needed to be righteous before God, and they couldn't make themselves righteous before God. And the law taught that the Messiah would come. God was going to send the Messiah, and he would pay for sin. He would ordained perfect righteousness by his sinlessness. And they could receive what the Messiah does by trusting what God will do through the Messiah. They could receive that in the Old Testament. That's Old Testament saints were saved. So what I want you to notice from verse 32 is that the Old Testament law, the Old Testament did not teach works. It did not teach salvation by works. That is a mistaken notion, a very confusing mistaken notion. The Old Testament law taught faith, faith in the Messiah, what God would do through the Messiah. And here's the problem, though. Israel, in her pride, did what many of us have done. They, they, they took their Bible, which was the Old Testament, and they twisted it into calling for faith, and they made it into something that was calling for them to try to earn their own righteousness to earn their righteousness before God by their works. They took the law, which taught faith, 
humility, trusting in what God would do through the Messiah. That's how you get perfect righteousness as a gift. And they twisted it in their pride. They distorted it, just like we've done with the New Testament, many, many people, and turned it into a system of works. Now, let me illustrate this with Luke 18. This is a parable that Jesus told. This perfectly pictures exactly what Paul is talking about here. I want you to see this. Luke 18, 9 through 14. Powerful parable. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who, get this next line, trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Trusting in themselves. I'm getting righteous enough. I'm going to be righteous enough to be saved. They were trusting in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10. Here's the the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, a Jewish religious leader, and the other a tax collector, despised tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Feeling it? Fast twice a week. I'm not hearing any applause yet. I give tithes of all that I get. So this is just reeks of self-righteousness. Pursuing the Old Testament law, not by faith, but as if it were by works. Perfect illustration of what Paul has just said. But the tax collector... I love this. Standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Massive contrast in these two prayers. I fast twice a week. I tithe all everything. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And look at the punchline, what Jesus says in the last verse. I tell you, Jesus says, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. That means perfectly righteous. The word justified means you're counted perfectly righteous by God. This man, God, be merciful to me. Look at what a sinner I am. He went down to his house perfectly righteous, justified before God. This man, rather than the other, the Pharisee was not righteous at all. Massive difference. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the Pharisee was a perfect example of someone who did not pursue the law by faith, but pursued it as if it were based on works. And so he did not receive God's God's gift of perfect righteousness. The tax collector did receive God's gift of perfect righteousness because he humbled himself as a sinner and put his faith in what God promised he would do through the Messiah. And he was saved, forgiven. So what the last part of Romans 9 teaches us is that the Old Testament did not teach salvation by works. It did not. The Old Testament taught salvation by faith. Faith in what God would do through the Messiah. 
We're in the New Testament now. We have faith in what God did do to the Messiah. But in the Old Testament, they had faith in what God promised to do to the Messiah. But both of them are faith. The Old Testament taught salvation by faith. The New Testament teaches salvation by faith. Same message. Read them both. That's where we're going. Now, let's look at chapter 10. Paul continues to develop this. What more do we learn about the law in chapter 10? Start with verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for Israel. Paul loved his people, the people of Israel. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They're they're passionate and devoted, but not according to knowledge. They do not understand who God is and how God works. Totally wrong. Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's free gift of righteousness. Israel was ignorant of the righteousness of God. How? Why? The Old Testament clearly taught that we can and that we must receive God's gift of perfect righteousness as a gift through faith, not through works. You can see that in Genesis 15, 6. It's a beautiful picture of what we're talking about here. Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed, there's faith, believed the Lord, trusted in the Lord. And what happened? The Lord counted it to Abraham as righteousness, a lifetime of perfect righteousness given to Abraham by faith alone. Right there, Old Testament, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham was justified by faith, not by works, just like we're all called, we all can be and must be, need to be. Think about this verse, Genesis 15, 6. It's just heartbreaking. The people of Israel find their identity in the fact that they are descendants of Abraham. And how did Abraham become righteous before God? Not by his works, by faith. By faith, Abraham was counted as perfectly righteous before God. It's tragic that that they're ignorant of that and that they were and are. Now, the reason Abraham could be counted as righteous is because of what the Messiah would do. We can see that in Isaiah 53.11. This is Old Testament a prophecy from Isaiah about what the the Messiah would accomplish. If you haven't read Isaiah 53, it's all about the cross. The the, the servant of the Lord is Isaiah's name for the Messiah dying on the cross. But look at what we read in verse 11. Speaking of the Messiah, Jesus, out of the anguish of his soul, I mean, this, the, the the suffering, the horrible suffering of the cross, he shall see the results of what he's done and be satisfied. Men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe saved. By his knowledge, I think that means by trusting him, by by people having that faith, that knowledge of who he is, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. The Messiah is going to make many to be accounted perfectly righteous. That's what the Messiah is going to do through the cross and through his own sinless life. And he shall bear their iniquities. 
So understand Genesis 15, 6, Isaiah 53, 11, both those verses are in the Old Testament. It's right there in the book. Remember, like we saw last week, all through the Old Testament, God said, there will be a remnant of believers, a remnant of Israel, lots of Israel, most of Israel through the Old Testament was not believing God's promises and trusting him. But there was always a remnant like Abraham, like Daniel, like Sarah, like Ruth, okay, Esther, always a remnant. And this remnant, by God's grace, they owned up to what the law was saying. I'm a sinner in desperate need of perfect righteousness. I can't make myself perfectly righteous. But God has promised that the Messiah would count many to be perfectly righteous by faith, by trusting in him. Anybody who will trust in the Messiah, perfect righteousness given as a gift. There was always a remnant throughout Israel's history of people who owned up to the truth of what was in the Old Testament law. And they put their faith in what God promised to do through the Messiah. And they were forgiven. They were saved. They were gifted with perfect righteousness. But tragically, tragically, Israel, for the most part, besides the remnant, ignored these verses. They wanted to make themselves righteous before God. So with that in mind, read verse 3 again. This is what many Israelites had done. Paul says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that gift that he would accomplish through the Messiah, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. It's a humbling thing to say, I cannot make myself righteous enough. I will never be righteous enough. I'm unrighteous. I need to humble myself and submit to God, to your gift of perfect righteousness. So understand, the Old Testament did not call us to establish our own righteousness by our works. It called us to receive righteousness by faith in what God would do through the Messiah. Just a little quiz time here. So did the Old Testament teach salvation by works? Thank you. The answer is no. Did the, did, does the New Testament teach salvation by faith? Okay, good. Did the Old Testament teach salvation by works? Does the Old Testament teach salvation by faith? Woo! Okay. Let's keep going. We're getting this. That brings us to verse 4 in Romans, which says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now that word end can also just as easily be translated goal. And there are many pastors, Bible scholars who think that this should be translated goal. So is Paul saying that Christ is the end of the law or that he's the goal of the law? As I thought about this, there are some parts of the Old Testament law that ended with Christ, right? Animal sacrifices, for example. All those animal sacrifices for sin are a picture of what Jesus would do when he was sacrificed on the cross, right? A lamb without blemish killed Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who pays for the sins of the world. So animal sacrifices ended with Christ. Circumcision ended. The food laws ended with Christ. Parts of the law did end with Christ. So that's why many take it as end. 
I'm not persuaded, though, that that's what Paul means here. Here's why. Read verse 4 as using the word goal. For Christ is the goal of the law, seeking to bring righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the, the goal of the law, to accomplish righteousness for everyone who believes. In other words, the law has a goal. Here's the law. It's going somewhere. Where's the law going? Where's the Lord wanting to, where, where's the law wanting to take everyone? To get the free gift of righteousness through Christ by faith. This is God's law. This is God's gift. The law is not going to point somewhere else besides, I mean, if God gives the law, he's not going to point somewhere else besides what he's up to. He's up to giving us the perfect gift of righteousness through faith in Christ the Messiah. So the law is pointing in that direction because it's God's law and this is God's purpose. Does that make sense? The law's got a goal. To call everyone to believe, to have faith in what God would do through Christ so they will receive his perfect righteousness. That's, that's the law's goal. So what that means is that everything in the law, the animal sacrifices, the temple, the promises, the commands, the prophecies, the history, everything in the law is pointing towards, put your trust in what God will do through the Messiah and you'll get the gift of righteousness. That's the whole message of the Old Testament law, which is also the whole message of the, the New Testament gospel. Are you getting the picture? Same message. Same way of salvation here. Verse 4. That's the goal of the law. And that brings us to verse 5, which is a difficult verse. So Paul has just said, Christ is the goal of the law, seeking to bring righteousness to all who have faith. Verse 5, 4, because Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That's a quote from Leviticus 18, verse 5, Old Testaments. Some people, well-respected people, scholars, sharp people, godly people, think Paul is saying here that Moses is giving a principle that perfect obedience to the law will bring eternal life, and the gift of perfect righteousness. Just kind of laying that out as a principle. Perfect obedience will bring perfect righteousness and eternal life. And the reason they sit, want to say that is because, of course, no one can do that, and so people will turn from that to, to Christ. Okay, so the, what they're saying is not terribly unbiblical, but I'm not persuaded that's what Moses was saying back in Leviticus 18.5. Hear me out. Do your own study. Let me give you my reasons. One reason is the law's commands that needed to be kept according to this verse included the animal sacrifices, which made allowance for forgiveness of sins. I mean, if, I, if God commands us, which he, he did in the Old Testament, he commanded Israel, when you sin, bring an unblemished lamb, kill it, sacrifice it, That'll give you a picture of what the Messiah will do so your sins can be forgiven. Then there's, there's no sense that I'm supposed to keep this perfectly because we do sin. God has made allowance for sin in the law. But the more important reason, I don't think that's what Moses is saying, is that I don't think Moses would ever, well, the context of Leviticus 18.5 is Moses is calling Israel to obey. Israel, obey God. 
obey God's commands. But would Moses say, obey God's commands because if you obey him perfectly, you'll have perfect righteousness and eternal life. Is that the reason Moses would give? When no one can do that. The Old Testament says no one can do that. That's why I struggle to take it that way. So I think Paul is quoting Moses to say something different. Remember, the goal of the law, verse 4, is to call people to have faith in how God would give them perfect righteousness through the Messiah. So think about this. When Paul mentions a righteousness based on the law in verse 5, what righteousness is he talking about? What righteousness was, was, was based on the law? Christ's righteousness for everyone who believes, just like verse 4 said, that's the goal of the law. That's the righteousness that's the goal of the law. Christ's righteousness. The righteousness Abraham received, Genesis 15, 6. The righteousness Isaiah prophesied the Messiah would accomplish, Isaiah 53, 11. So here's what I think Paul is saying in quoting Moses in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, talking about Christ's righteousness, which is by faith alone, that the person who does the commandments and the commandments focus on faith and animal sacrifice, forgiveness of sins. But again, faith, faith, the law, the goal of the law is faith. So people get the gift of righteousness. The person who does those commandments shall live by them. He'll be given perfect righteousness. Doesn't need to obey perfectly. There's the animal sacrifices, forgiveness. There's great forgiveness with God. He's slow to anger, abounding in mercy. But as they put their trust in what God promised to do through the Messiah, they would have eternal life and the gift of perfect righteousness. Now, this brings us to another tough passage, another tough verse. What is Paul's point in quoting from Deuteronomy 30? Such an interesting text here. In verses 6 through 8 of Romans 10, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30. So I thought it'd be helpful to read Deuteronomy 30 first. Let's just get it exactly as Moses said it, and then watch what Paul does with it. It's so interesting. So Deuteronomy 30, start with verse 11. Moses says, For this commandment that I command you today, he's talking to Israel, is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Okay, Moses' point is this. God's command, which focuses on faith, trusting what he would do through the Messiah, trusting God's promises, it's not too hard. No one can do it sinlessly. Old Testament teaches that clearly. But by God's grace, we can keep it faithfully. That's what he's saying here. It's not too hard. It does not require extraordinary achievements like climbing up to heaven somehow to bring God's word down to us. We've got it. Or extraordinary achievements like you got to go across the sea to get the word to us and bring us back. No, we've got it. It's in our mouths. It's in our hearts. God's written it on our hearts. It's here. Now look at how Paul quotes this passage in Romans 10, 6 through 8. Look, what he, look at how he brings Jesus in. This is just beautiful what he does. But the righteousness based on faith Remember, that was the goal of the law. 
The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith. That's the heart of the commands, the word of faith that we proclaim. Okay. Now remember Deuteronomy 30, Moses had said, obedience to God does not require extraordinary achievements. Going up to heaven and going across the sea in Romans 10, Paul explains why it's because Christ has done the extraordinary achievements. That's why Christ has come down from heaven. Stunning to think about. God has come down and been born as a baby. Extraordinary achievement. That's what Jesus did. Our Jesus did that. And he's risen from the dead. And if you think you're going to rise from the dead by your own power, impossible. Christ rose from the dead. He came down from heaven extraordinary achievement. He rose from the dead, extraordinary achievements. And coming down from heaven and rising from the dead covers Jesus' entire life and ministry. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He grew up, he ministered, he died on the cross. He rose from the dead. That's his whole ministry is what Paul is talking about here. And so Paul's point is Christ has done all that's needed for our salvation. Everything that's needed to be completely saved, he has done. Earth, life, perfect righteousness, death, resurrection. So what's left is that we put our faith in what he's done. And we trust him to save us. Trust him to forgive us for all of our sin. Trust him to clothe us with his perfect righteousness. Trust him to progressively change our hearts. We become more and more and more obedient, which he promises to do and he will do for all of us. Trust him to satisfy our hearts in his presence. Trust him to welcome us into the new heavens and the new earth. He's done everything. We come and we, we trust. I'm, I, I need to trust. I can't do anything more than trust. You've done everything. I trust you. And he will do everything for us to save us. So what's Paul's conclusion? What does this mean for us? Start with verse 8. We'll go from verses 8 to 13 to see Paul's conclusion. Verse 8. But what does it say? Again, this is the end of the Deuteronomy 30. Quote, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, Paul's point is not that we, we confess one with our mouth and we don't believe that. We just confess it and we believe the other one with our heart, but we don't confess it. No, we, we confess and we believe both of these. That's what Paul's talking about here. We, can, we must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And if we confess that genuinely, which is what Paul's talking about, we will believe it in our heart, right? You don't genuinely confess something you don't believe. You'll believe it. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you really believe that, will you confess it with your mouth? You betcha. So it's not confess one, believe the other. Paul's talking about 
believing in our hearts genuinely so we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead and will be saved. In other words, Paul is saying, this is his conclusion from Deuteronomy 30, that Deuteronomy 30 teaches we are saved by faith. Confess with our mouths, believe in our hearts, Jesus is Lord, God has raised him from the dead. That word of faith, believing that is how we're saved. Deuteronomy 30 says the same thing that the New Testament says. Old Testament saved by faith, New Testament saved by faith, same message. Then verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified. The word justified means to be declared perfectly righteous by God. With the heart one believes and is justified. There it is, gift of perfect righteousness. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Saved from the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. All of the wrath, because you're trusting Jesus Christ tonight, all of the wrath that was coming toward you because of your sin, all that wrath was diverted and poured out upon Jesus on the cross. He willingly suffered that because he loves us. And God the Father broke his heart. He willingly poured that out upon his beloved son because he loves us. Justified, saved. Verse 10. Then verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Another Old Testament quote from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 28, 16. Again, faith, 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 everyone who believes. And Paul adds the word everyone here. He added that to Isaiah's quote. Everyone, Paul wants to emphasize that, who believes in him will not be put to shame. Believers can sometimes be put to shame, ostracized, rejected, looked down upon. Some of you are probably experiencing that right now. But oh, understand, you will never be put to shame. Just like Paul said in Romans chapter 8, forever, forever, you will be glorified. Glorified. Shining, not with your glory, but with Jesus Christ's glory. Ablaze with Christ's glory. Brilliantly bright with Christ's glory. You're going to be shining, so no shame, just awesome wonder and honor as we look at each other. We're going to be seeing each other saying, whoa, whoa. And you'll be looking at me saying, whoa. And we'll be honored with Christ's glory shining from us. When people look at, at us, when you look at each other, it'll be Christ is glorious. Christ is glorious. Look at you. Christ is glorious. Forever, no shame shining with glory. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is the Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Calling on him is, is another word for faith, really just like the, the tax collector in Jesus parable, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He's calling upon the Lord. And that's an expression of faith. I'm a sinner. I need your mercy. I'm trusting you for your mercy. Calling upon the Lord. And God bestows riches on all who call upon him. Don't think physical riches. 
material riches. That's nothing. He will provide everything for each of us that we need in this life to do what God's called us to do. He's promised to do that. It's not what Paul's talking about here. Remember end of verse, end of Romans chapter nine, he will bestow the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. That's all of us who are trusting Christ, the riches of his glory, seeing his glory face to face. Like we just sang from the Psalm 23 song. And then verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a quote from the Old Testament, prophet Joel, Joel 2, 32. See how Paul is piling up Old Testament scripture, Old Testament scripture, Old Testament scripture, Old Testament scripture, faith, 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 not works, not works, not works, not works, gift of righteousness, gift of righteousness, gift of righteousness, gift of righteousness through the Messiah, Old Testament. Do you see that? Same message as the New Testament. Same. Same. It's three quarters of the sword you can use now without any doubt, without any confusion. So here's the burning question I think Paul would want us to end with. Are you believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead? To believe and confess that Jesus is Lord means you believe that he is fully God. God in the flesh. The radiance of God's glory, the book of Hebrews says. By whom all things were created and for whom all things were created. That's our Jesus. For whom all things. He's the Lord. That God has appointed Jesus to be the the ultimate reality, the supreme majesty, the highest joy of any human being. God has appointed Christ to take that place. That's Christ. So are you believing and confessing that Jesus Christ has that place of highest majesty, highest honor, that he is the greatest joy any human being can ever know? Do you believe that? Which would show because there are times when you're desiring Jesus above everything else. We desire Jesus above everything else. He is your greatest joy. As you think back about this last week, my greatest joy has been Jesus. He's the one we put our hopes in. What I'm looking forward to, what I'm longing for the most is Jesus Christ. Having the heavens open, having the trumpet blow, having him come, come Lord Jesus. That's what will happen to people who are believing that Jesus is Lord. Is that happening in you? Now, if you've been saved, and if you're honest, we'll all say it's happening some, but not as much as I'd like it to happen. Right? Remember the old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's what all of us struggle with, if we're honest. Are we going to be honest tonight? Let's be honest. We all struggle with that. We have times when we experience that. He is my hope. He is my joy. He's my strongest desire. And there's times where we're like, oh man, I know it should be, but I'm really thinking about this over here or this over here, right? 
Church, we all deal with this. And that's why we also need to believe that God has raised him from the dead. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus shows that his death was not the death of a criminal, but the death of the God-man who was paying for all of our wandering, right? And that what raised him from the dead was the power of the Holy Spirit, who Paul said back in chapter 8 is the same spirit who's indwelling us and who's strengthening us. So we, we will use the sword to fight unbelief. We'll use the sword, to, the whole sword, three quarters and one quarter, the whole sword to fight against temptations that come, temptations to wander away. We'll use that. And the power of the Holy Spirit will again and again and again strengthen us, strengthen our faith, conquer temptations again and again. So we're back. We're back. And then we start to wander again. Pull out the sword. Start hacking. Start hacking. We're back. He's Lord. And God raised him from the dead. Are you believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead? Believe that Jesus is Lord, incomparable majesty, and God did raise him from the dead. He's the Savior who forgives us and changes our hearts again and again and again. Let's stand and pray. We praise you for the sword of the spirit, for your word. That three quarters of it is saying the same thing as the last quarter of it. That the Old Testament, same message as the New Testament. I pray that right now you'd strengthen each of us in believing in our hearts and confessing with our mouths that you, Jesus Christ, are Lord. And Lord, that we'd be relying on your death on the cross to forgive us for the times when we are wayward and that the power of your Holy Spirit would change our hearts again and again to bring us back. Do that for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.